This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to give you a perspective, a very brief perspective, on what I think is the topic today from the vantage point of somebody who is a clinical neurologist and a research geneticist. And so that's really where I'm coming from. And hopefully this idea of a continuum will make sense as I go through. So two themes that, that I'd like to uh, present and discuss. Human disorders of cognition and behavior are part of normal human variation, in other words, the human condition. And to understand human brain function, we must understand individual variability. That's the key. So from a geneticist standpoint, this says, for those of you who can't read, because my genetic programming prevents me from stopping to ask directions, that's why. <laughs> now, so those of you who have been in that situation before, you can't blame your spouse. This is genetic programming. <laughs> now, of course, we know that that's not true, that um, behavior is a combination of genes and the environment. But genes play a kind of considerable role in all the behavior, as I'll discuss really briefly, as well as brain structure which is what, and function, which is what underlies our behavior. It's the organ that is essential for behavior. So neuropsychiatric disorders are also highly heritable. And so I'm just showing here in A, how prevalent many of these disorders are. Even the rarest, like Tourette syndrome, is close to a percent in the population. Schizophrenia, about a percent autism a little more than a percent, all the way up to anxiety, which is about 30 percent, you know, uh, general. But if you look at the calculated heritability, which is just an estimate from twin and family studies, all of these disorders have very substantial heritability. And on some of them, the error bars are quite large, but they range, none of them are less than 40 percent, and many of them are are over 80 percent. So we really have a group of highly heritable disorders, and the question is, where does that come from? So again, as a neuroscientist and neurologist, as well as a geneticist, genes interact with the environment during development to lead to cerebral structure. Now, structure is not a static structure. This is a very highly dynamic structure. So we have what we can see, what you can see with imaging or other tools. You have microscopic anatomy. But you also have chemical and molecular plasticity that's ongoing um, virtually constantly. As you're listening to this, it's ongoing. So, and of course, that is what underlies cognitive function. And so, um, and of course, it's not a unidirectional. Development occurs over time, and cognitive function and behavior feeds back on brain structure. So there's a constant iteration of the brain as we develop and as we're exposed to the environment. Now, of course, as we all look around, we can see each other, and we're all highly variable. We're all individuals. We look at each other. There's, we should be able to tell each other all apart from each other most of the time. And so the same thing with the brain. There's an enormous amount of variability in the brain. And here's just one example of that that I found quite interesting from uh, Lawrence Binder. This is the uh, IQ test, the WACE, or it's one of the IQ tests. Forgive me, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm just presenting this. So this is from a paper that he did. And basically, if you go up to 11 or 14 subtests on these different domains that make up IQ and look at the percentage of people who score, these are normal people, who score in the abnormal range on at least one test, it's 71. And if you go to 14, the more tests, 82%. 
score in the abnormal range. And if you look at three standard deviations, which is really considerably, uh, you know, would be called abnormal in psychoeducational testing, it's almost a quarter when you're doing 14 subtests. So what does that mean? We all have strengths and weaknesses. We kind of know that, but we don't act that way. Our educational system doesn't work that way, and a lot of times that we even discuss, um, you know, our own colleagues, we don't act that way. <laughs> so here's another, uh, here's another point, is that if you look at functional brain networks, which are just kind of color-coded here, things that are interconnected with each other, no brain area really acts alone. They're connected in networks, but if we look at a map of intersubject variability, red being very high, higher, we can see that the areas of highest intersubject variability are those areas that are um, um, kind of uh, the most multimodal, called heteromodal association cortices. These are not the regions that are involved in primary sensation like vision or touch or motor function. These are the places where thoughts and, your, and, your, um, and the environment is integrated. So that's really a critical issue, is that the, the things that, like the frontal lobe and other circuits that really make us who we are, allow us to plan and really account for a lot of our uniquely human characteristics are the most variable between us. And of course, I mentioned there's a high degree of variability, there's also a high degree of heritability. And this is, again, my genetics viewpoint. Not deterministic, please don't get that idea, but there are two twins. I just find this picture so unbelievably cute. <laughs> Much cuter than the identical twin brains. But the point here is that um, identical twin brains are, are also highly similar, just like twins look similar on the outside. The brain, the structure, the function, highly, highly similar. In fact, most structures in the brain, you know, depending, you know, let's just call it, let's start with the cerebral cortex are you know, around 70% to 80% heritability. And this maintains over the lifespan, actually, so it's quite interesting. So then the question is, you know, you know, I, I showed you that IQ kind of test that shows that you, know, um, you might have a really high IQ, but the likelihood is you're going to be really poor in a few areas. And so you know, let's ex explore that a little bit. Is ability really unidimensional? So the concept of G, or general intelligence, um, this is highly heritable. I think its heritability is around 0.6, so, um, and uh, it's related to many psychoeducational tests. Again, as a neurologist, not as a psychologist, I look at it as things that task working memory and frontal lobe function very strongly, but it doesn't predict many functions. You can have a very high IQ and be bad in certain things. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, again, just like that Binder um, um, table that I showed you, we have to be re really careful when we're looking at, at people um, to really understand strengths and weaknesses, which I think is one of the themes of the discussion that we're going to have today, talking about very unusual strengths. So ability is specific. I'm just going to hammer this in a little bit. This is a, what I think is a spectacular chalk drawing from um, somebody that I don't know well, but I've talked to his mother quite a bit at some times, who's an autistic artist named Jonathan Lerman, who, who is um, a really remarkable artist. And the foreword to this book is written by the New York Times art critic. This is a serious artist, and I have some of his art, and it's very Picasso-esque. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, but there are times when he's been absolutely nonverbal and really highly dysfunctional um, and having a lot of problems. But, you know, this is not that uncommon. 
Now, how about me? Like, you know, I'm a relatively smart guy. I have a few degrees. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not up there with the people we're going to be talking about today. I don't have any of those qualities. I'm kind of not exceptional. I'm just a professor. But, um, but I do... Um, no, seriously. Um, there's nothing exceptional about that. And, and, and yet at the same time, um, you know, I might be able to do well... You know, I've had to do well in school, and that's because school involves, like, writing and reading and mathematics, and I can do that. Um, but this is one thing I can't do. And this is not a joke. <laughs> that's my... I've been drawing like that since I was like in third or fourth grade. This is the best I can do. And um, I'm not joking. Now, it's true that I, ability is a combination of genes and the environment. So there's no question that I could probably do better if I put my mind to it. Bruce, Bruce Miller believes that I can. Um, I've tried at times, because um, my mom was an artist, and she tried to get me to draw and stuff, and I was really, really bad. But just the point I want to make is that strengths and weaknesses really, um, some strengths come together, they come in groups, um, and we're going to talk about that a lot today. But the point is just because one's strong in one area doesn't mean that you're strong in all areas. And if we had an educational system where I had to represent the world in two or three dimensions, I wouldn't have gotten very far, I'm sure of that. <laughs> so now how does this fit into genetics? Well, this is uh, from Wikimedia Images, one of my main sources. Uh, we use this a lot. Um, it's actually probably from Daniel MacArthur. You know, it's a cartoon from uh, the Broad Group. But um, what you can see here is this is 10,000 BC. This is around where we are right now. This is the estimated population in billions. And you can see that there's an enormous uh, rise, that we were, humans were a very small population. But in the last 10, you know, we essentially have arisen from an ancestral population more than 10,000 years ago. What's interesting is that we come from a small set of ancestors, and that means that the, the, we share common genetic variation that's been acted on by evolution. If those had been very deleterious, anything that's highly deleterious would get removed after thousands of generations. So that the variation that we all share, that is common genetic variation, things greater than 1% in the population, we're 90, our genomes are 99.9% identical. Those things that we share have been acted on by natural selection to remove strong bad actors. And therefore, the things that contribute to most of our human phenotypes, from diabetes to human cognition, have very, each individually have very small effect sizes. And so they haven't been purified. And so when we're looking for genes that cause diseases, a lot of what's going on in genetic association studies is we're looking for relatively high-frequency variants that are more than 1% in the population, but they have very small effect sizes, as opposed to mutation screens that identify genes of large effect, but they're generally much rarer. Now, I'm not saying that all human variation is due to common variation, but a good deal of it is. And so we can begin to think, and this is a classic behavior from a behavior genetics textbook from DeFries and, and Robert Plowman. I, I, I actually, the W doesn't belong there. Um, there's part of my uh, residual dyslexia from childhood. Um, but complex diseases and disorders and all complex human cognition lies on a continuum of normal variability, a disease threshold model, where we, we get one copy of each gene from mom and one from dad, and uh, this particular variant if you have the BB variant, uh, you, you're likely to be past a threshold, but it's not deterministic. 
And think about this as an additive set of normal distributions where these variants of very small effect sizes are adding, adding, adding up. Another point is that the threshold is somewhat arbitrary in many cases. What's high blood pressure? What's high glucose? What's bad reading? What's attention deficit disorder, etc.? This is all somewhat an arbitrary threshold that's based upon society and what usually, hopefully, what's practical for the biomedical enterprise. So this is the kind of foundation that took me when I started to work on autism about now about 17 years ago to think about autism as part of the continuum of normal variation. And this is the idea. Autism diagnosis depends upon quantitative impairment in multiple domains. It's not qualitative. We all, some people here are really good socially, some aren't. But, but to, to become autistic, you have to fall out here. If you think of each of these as a, as, as a, as a contour of normal distribution where the green is highly advantageous, really superior functioning, and the red is, is, you know, is less than optimal. And so they have first children with autism have to have repetitive restrictive behavior and deficits in social behavior. The diagnosis has changed over the last five years so that language is now not fundamentally part of it, but it often is. But just the point here is that, again, a line is drawn and you have to have impairment in multiple domains that's quantitative and measured so that those people that are here who might be a sibling on one area aren't autistic or if they're here. And that's arbitrary again. It's our diagnosis. Do we have proof of that? Yes, there's quite a bit of proof. I'm going to show you one really nice piece of data that was published recently by Elise Robinson and Mark Daly. So social function in those without autism is strongly related to the same genetic factors that increase autism genetic risk. What you can do is you can come up with a composite genetic score, all these little, small, common risk variants, add them up in what's called a polygenic risk score. And you can ask, if I have that for autism, and it has about a 70% prediction for who's going to be autistic, how, how well is that correlated with just autism in the normal population? And the normal population being used here is a longitudinal study of parents and children in Avon. It's, it, it's in England. It's called ALSPAC, and if you look, you can see that the genetic correlation between um, the Psychiatric Genetic Consortium Autism and a Danish Autism Consortium are both close to 0.3. That's an enormous correlation. So that's telling us that the things that, in the common variation that we have that predisposes to autism is part of normal variation. So how about other things? How about other, and you're going to hear a lot more about some of these topics today, but I just wanted to touch on them and give you a point of view, maybe a framework. So there's something called synesthesia, and this is a slide from my colleague Simon Baron Cohn, who would have given a much better talk than I'm giving, but, um, and unfortunately can't be here. But s stimulation of one sensory modality automatically triggers a perception in a second. So it might be that, you, that you, when you see a word, you hear music with it, or vice versa. When you hear music, there's a color associated with it. It's actually present in some degree or another in 4% of the population. It also has a strong genetic... Um, there's evidence that it you know, has, has genetic uh, um, factors. So about 
almost 40% have at least one other family member with synesthesia. And there's been some evidence of genetic linkage even, but no genes have been identified as far as I'm aware. But maybe um, Simon knows or Simon Fisher. So now I'm going to tell you just a brief bit about about somebody that Simon Baron-Cohen knows quite well, which is Daniel Tammet. And many of you may have read his book, Born on a Blue Day. If you haven't read it, you must read it. It it is an extraordinary book. Um, There, you know, you... If you haven't read it, you wouldn't believe that, that there's a, you know, somebody who can do this. But he sees numbers of shapes and colors. This test of genuineness is a test that, uh, that is related to synesthesia. He's invented his own language. He learns languages in two weeks. I think he learned Finnish in two weeks. Perfectly. Uh, he performs mathematical calculations that you can't imagine. He um, is the European champion in pi to 22,515. And he has Asperger's syndrome. So the question is, so, okay, so that's an interesting observation. That's a a very rare, unique individual with these features. So you can ask the question, does autism, is synesthesia increased in people with autism? So if independent synesthesia and autism should co-occur in four out of 10,000 people, because of the, but they're not, Simon Baron-Cohen's study shows that it's present in almost 19%. Of course, this is done via questionnaires, so it would have to be redone measuring it, but I think one would argue that it's quite uh, enriched. Also, there's also an enrichment among those who have a perfect pitch with synesthesia. I think about 20, you know, in this study, about 20%. So there's a relationship of some of the things that we're going to be talking about today that are really extraordinary variations on the human mind and uh, common genetic variation and what we think of as intellectual or behavioral disabilities or disorders. And so I'll leave you with one thought. What does it mean that a feature that is present rarely in the general population is more frequent in those with a disorder? I mean, of course, it means that the human condition is one of strengths and weaknesses and that great, great strength can be the flip side of disability. And in part, this is because of the genetic contributions to evolution, to human brain evolution, that we've inherited strengths along with weaknesses, and sometimes they lead to what we call a disorder. And I'm going to leave you with another interesting thought, that if you look at the most variable brain regions in human, there are also those that have expanded most on the human lineage, getting back to one of my earliest slides. Again, this is from a paper, Mueller et al., a neuron in 2013. And basically, if you look at the cortical surface expansion in this frontal, parietal, temporal lobe area, and then you look at the areas with the most intersubject variability, there it is. And we know that cortical surface volume, especially volume, is highly heritable, so that this variability is highly heritable as well. And you can look at this correlation. You know, there's a, a strong correlation throughout, not just in my picture. So we've had 150 years in behavioral neurology of learning from the individual, from Tan, who was Broca's first patient, and from seeing two patients. He reasoned that language was in the frontal lobes. Well, maybe that was a little too specific. Wernicke helped him out a little bit. But, but he reasoned that the cerebral cortex was therefore asymmetric and that language was on one side. And here's another patient, patient HM, who was one of a series of patients who had bilateral hippocampal damage and led to our, you know, played important roles in our understanding of memory. So again, I want to say that we must lear- learn, um, you know, to continue to understand the nature of individual differences and how uh, disease, what we call disease and disorders, is really just part of the human condition. And these exceptional variations are often strongly associated with vulnerabilities. Thank you.
It is a pleasure and an honor to be here and to have the opportunity to talk with you about our work uh, integrating uh, genes, brain, and behavior in a truly extraordinary human condition called Williams Syndrome. An important point of departure for this talk uh, is the fact that uh, brain function or dysfunction can be observed at multiple levels of neuronal organization. The, mo the uh, most basic, of course, is gene expression, which works through cellular and uh, brain circuitry mechanisms to produce the complex emergent phenomena that make us who and what we are, uh, conferring complex behaviors and, in some cases, susceptibility to disorders. There's been a tremendous uh, impetus to, uh, in our research portfolios to understand the genetic uh, determinants of this cascade of events. And it's really easy to understand why this is the case, because genes are entry points to molecular pathways that can lead us to new treatments, to early detection, and possibly to prevention uh, of diseases, and to teach us about our variability and what makes us who and what we are. And I'm going to be telling you about Williams syndrome, which is a ex truly extraordinary model uh, of phenotype-genotype relationships, and that allows us to make inferences across these multiple levels of neuronal organization and sometimes disorganization. So let me tell you first about the genetics uh, of Williams syndrome. Uh, this is a rare disorder. It is uh, uh, exists in somewhere between 1 in 7,500 and 1 in 20,000 live births, depending on whose statistics one believes. And it is caused by the removal, the hemideletion, of one copy of a number of genes, about 25 of them, on chromosome 7 uh, in this locale. This is about 1.6 megabases of genetic material. And uh, this is a very active part of our genome, and the reason is that uh, this segment of DNA is flanked on both sides for everyone in this room by uh, low-copy repeat sequences. This means that there are similar DNA uh, sequences here and here. It's thought that these are of recent origin and uh, rapid evolution that play a role in hominid speciation. And this, this causes mistakes during recombination. Uh, these two ends can get mixed up. And this leads to either the removal of one copy, which is uh, what causes Williams syndrome, or duplication, which causes uh, three copies of genes to be present in this region. And at the end of my talk, I'll tell you about this uh, fascinating duplication syndrome. But first, uh, about Williams syndrome. So I, I and my colleagues, we were drawn to Williams syndrome because this is a very well-defined, circumscribed cognitive behavioral profile in human beings, which I'll tell you about in a moment. Uh, moreover, the affected genes are known, unlike many of the complex disorders that we study, schizophrenia, autism, etc., cetera, uh, many of the ones that uh, Dr. Geshwin uh, showed before. We hoped that by studying uh, Williams syndrome, this 
gold standard phenotype-genotype link, that we would be able to um, uncover neurogenetic mechanisms that underlie complex human behaviors and disorders. And our goal has been, and our, and our strategy has been to very carefully define the brain phenotype, the, the brain features that characterize Williams syndrome, and to use this information to bridge the knowledge gap between genes and behavior. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, the syndrome. Uh, people with Williams syndrome have facial features that are very similar. This is an old picture, very famous, from one of Dr. Belugi's uh, seminal uh, papers. And you can see how much these unrelated children with Williams syndrome look. But it was really two hallmark neurobehavioral features that caught our interest, one in the domain of personality and one in the domain of cognition, and I'll be speaking about uh, each of these. Let's talk about the cognitive profile first. This is a, an, a distinctive pattern of peaks and valleys in abilities. Language is, is uh, very good, face recognition is preserved, but visuospatial construction is markedly impaired. Visuospatial construction is the ability to visualize an object or picture as a set of parts and construct a replica of the object from those parts. This is the classic uh, neuropsychometric test that's used to access visuospatial uh, constructive abilities. This is the block design test. People are shown a model like this and they're given some blocks and asked to reconstruct it. And you can see how poorly folks with Williams syndrome do, even compared to folks with Down syndrome with the same IQs. Another way that this can be accessed is by drawing, which Dr. Geshwin was talking about. And this is a child, a seven and a nine and a half year old child drawing a bicycle. And we would not know at all that this was a bicycle if the parts weren't labeled for us. So a dissolution of this information in space. And I love this example, again, from uh, a work of Dr. Belugi's. This is an elephant. And we would not know that if uh, this weren't labeled. This is a pretty impoverished picture. And compared it to this rather rich uh, depiction in the verbal domain from the same uh, teen with Williams syndrome, and I'll read some of it to you. It lives in the jungle. It can also live in the zoo. It has long gray ears, fan ears, ears that can blow in the wind. If they're in a bad mood, it can be terrible. It could stomp. It could charge. They have big, long tusks. They can damage a car. You don't want an elephant as a pet. You want a cat, a dog, or a bird. <laughs> So pretty rich and, and very lyrical almost compared to this impoverished drawing. So domain specificity of the peaks and valleys in Williams syndrome. My colleagues and I over the years have done a number of studies trying to understand the, the brain features that go along with that inability. This is a posterior back view of the brain, and uh, we and others now have found a structural anomaly. This is not a lesion. It would not be read as such by any radiologist, but this is a statistical finding, a reduction in gray matter volume, the gray matter of our brains right here early in the dorsal stream that processes where objects are in space. We also found functional deficits that emerge from this structural anomaly. And this has been a very uh, well-replicated and reliable brain phenotype for mapping gene effects. And that, of course, was our goal in starting out these studies. 
And we have found, I don't have time to talk about this today, although perhaps we will in the uh, question and answer part, but we found this to be linked to one, one particular gene in the Williams syndrome region, the LIMK1 gene. I'd like to turn to the uh, Williams syndrome profile now because this is in many ways the most immediately apparent uh, and captivating aspect of folks with, with this syndrome. They are highly and overly social, they're em empathic, outgoing, loquacious, charming, uh, unusually friendly even with strangers. However, they're anxious in some non-social situations, never social, uh, uh, non-social. So, Increased sociability, increased number of social contacts, increased empathy that can be uh, measured experimentally. They don't observe social distance unless they're taught to. Uh, they're socially fearless even in infancy, but there is this strong increase in non-social anxiety. My colleagues and I have also searched for brain features underlying this aspect of Williams syndrome, and we've uh, become very interested in an area called the insula and convinced that it's important. Uh, so this is an area of the brain that integrates cognitive, affective, and social information. It plays a crucial role in empathy, uh, in introception, thinking about ourselves, and in social function. So it's a great candidate, and we have found that the both the the uh, structural size and the function of this region of the brain predicts the degree to which this Williams syndrome personality profile is expressed in individual patients, and we've replicated this in a large number of children now. And we have linked this to a general transcription factor gene that is in the Williams syndrome region. Uh, I'd like to turn now to talk to you about children with duplication. So these folks have three copies of these relevant genes, and they are, uh, provide a remarkable opportunity and are extraordinarily interesting also. So uh, people with the deletion were uh, described first about a decade ago by my colleague Carolyn Mervis and others, and you can see right away that people with the duplication have similar facial features, as do those with Williams syndrome, but they're quite different. And they differ in uh, other very important and interesting ways. Williams syndrome, as I've told you, has a weakness in spatial skills, whereas there's a relative strength in spatial skills in the duplication. And you can see this uh, in examples from two of our uh, children patients, child patients. This is a 12-and-a-half-year-old with Williams syndrome drawing a bike, a little impoverished. This is a 10-year-old with a duplication drawing a bike, and you can clearly see the contrast in the level of detail and spatial uh, uh, integration in this, this image. Uh, folks with Williams syndrome have a strength in expressive language. They're very personable uh, and good language uh, relative to IQ. Uh, people with Williams, with uh, the duplication, have a marked speech and language delay, and this is often why they come to the attention of clinicians, so a contrast there. People with Williams syndrome are excessively social. However, people with the duplication have problematic and reduced social function. And in fact, there was a very influential paper uh, from uh, UCSF showing that the duplication of Williams syndrome genes is formally 
and statistically associated with a diagnosis of autism. And we've actually uh, shown this experimentally using a personality questionnaire uh, in which we found a factor, a sociability factor, comprised of cheerfulness, gregariousness, people-orientedness, visibility, affectionateness, and responsivity that uh, had a stepwise function according to the number of genes. One copy in Williams syndrome, here's their sociability score. Two copies in typically developing children, around zero. And three in the duplication syndrome. And we're using these values to search for brain uh, features that may correlate with uh, this gene dosage. And we believe that these brain features exist, and we will find them. And we actually have some preliminary uh, evidence that I want to share with you. So uh, with regard to total brain volume and relative cerebellar volume, we see opposite but stepwise functions, one copy, two copies, three copies of these genes, one copy, two copies, three copies of these genes. And what's interesting about this is that the findings in the duplication syndrome uh, are also evident in autism, although uh, there is some controversy about this. So it will be such a privilege to continue this work and to uh, continue to see these children longitudinally over time, which we're doing at the NIH right now. So uh, contrasting behaviors and brain features associated with stepwise alterations in these particular uh, genes in 7Q1123, one copy of affected genes in Williams syndrome, two copies in the general population, three in the duplication syndrome. So this is a very clear road to uncovering neurogenetic mechanisms uh, and an extraordinary opportunity to understand what makes us who and what we are and what biological mechanisms confer our wonderful human variability. It's an extraordinary syndrome and a privilege to study it. I'd like to uh, take a moment to thank our families and uh, our participants, and I'd like to thank Dr. Belugi for her continuing inspiration throughout my career, and you for your attention. So why is a geneticist interested in something like language, something that we learn? And for, to answer this question, I'm going to hand over to uh, somebody who's much more eloquent than I am, and it's this fellow here, Charles Darwin. And about 150, almost 150 years ago, he uh, really summed up what's amazing and remarkable about language. He said, language is an art, like brewing or baking. It certainly is not a true instinct, for every language has to be learned. It differs widely from all ordinary arts, for man has an instinctive tendency to speak, as we see in the babble of our young children. While no child has an instinctive tendency to brew, bake, or write. So, this really beautifully captures uh, something strange about language. And let's dig into this a little bit more. So, <clears throat> by the time a child is only a few years of age, they've already assembled um, a vocabulary of thousands of words. They can uh, assemble these words into a potentially limitless number of meaningful sentences using grammatical rules, <clears throat> and these meaningful sentences can relate not only to the present, but also the past, the future, even abstract concepts. And then something that we take completely for granted, um, but is really <coughs> extraordinary, is the ability that a child learns to take the thoughts that are sitting inside their heads 
and convert them into streams of sound via the most incredible feat of motor control of the articulatory uh, functions moving uh, the muscles that control the face, the jaw, uh, the larynx uh, in this rapid kind of uh, dance uh, of, of motor function that converts thoughts into streams of sound. And then uh, another child's ears can do uh, an amazing thing, which is to kind of reverse engineer, decode this stream of sound, reverse engineer it, figure out what the original thought was, and come to their own conclusions. <laughs> All these different things that happen in the first few years of life, uh, a child can develop this suite of skills without needing any kind of formal tuition. So in a way that's, that seems very uh, almost magical. Um, and it's a complicated set of different things that go towards being able to become a proficient speech and language user. Uh, so how do we explain this? Um, and people have speculated that there might be something important uh, in our genes. Now, importantly here, uh, this is actually a great example, a perfect example of uh, interaction between genes and environment. Um, and this is obvious to you as soon as you think about the fact that uh, a child who grows up in, uh, in, in the Netherlands, surrounded by Dutch speakers, will learn to speak Dutch. That same child growing up in Japan, surrounded by Japanese speakers, will learn to speak Japanese. And a child who is not sp uh, exposed to language will never become a, a lang language user. So uh, there's this uh, uh, incredible interaction between uh, genetics and environment, but there's something in the genes that seems to predispose us to soak up language from the environment around us in early life. Now, um, not every child, unfortunately, when exposed to language, becomes as proficient as this, uh, as this young lady here, for example. Um, so there are some kids who are exposed to language and have language-rich environments, but they fail to become uh, proficient language users. And in some cases, there might be a reason for this, like they have a physical problem, uh, they're deaf or, or, or they have some kind of uh, general cognitive problem. But in some cases, there are kids that fail to learn language and it's a mystery and we don't know why. Um, and it was noticed very early on when people started studying uh, these kind of uh, uh, disorders that th these cases clustered in families. So if you have a relative with a problem with development of speech and language, that uh, dramatically increases your risk. Um, now, this kind of familial clustering could in fact relate to something like shared environment, for example, in the family. Um, but we know from studies of twins that actually there's a very, very high heritability for these kind of speech and language disorders, unexplained speech and language disorders. We know this by uh, looking at the concordance in uh, the rates of language disorders in identical twins as compared to non-identical twins. And there's been many, many studies that robustly show this. Um, and what I want to talk to you about uh, uh, in the remainder of the, of, the, of the talk is the idea that we should be able to go further than just saying, well, there's genes involved, to actually being able to say, can we take some people who have uh, speech and language problems and uh, figure out what the actual genes are, the particular genes that are important? One of the wonderful things about being able to find uh, the genes that are involved is that we can use these as kind of windows, molecular windows, into the intermediate biology. And this is my favorite slide that I always show, and everybody, I think, has a version of this slide if they work on genes and brain and behavior. There's this huge gap between DNA and the outputs, the behavioral outputs that we're interested in. Uh, and we're not so naive, naive to ignore that gap, but we think that we can use the knowledge of the genetics 
to actually fill in and understand each different level. So we can understand that many genes that we study uh, are important because they code for proteins, and the proteins kind of all work together as molecular and machinery in your cells to do all the functions of your cells. We know that um, genes and proteins are important for different properties of the way that neurons uh, uh, develop. So, for example, they might influence the proliferation of neurons in early development. They might uh, influence how neurons move to the migrate to the final positions in the brain, how those neurons uh, differentiate and extend out kind of their axons to connect up and wire up with other neurons in the brain. And then we might want to understand how neural circuits actually work. One of the most fascinating things about the interaction between genes and neural circuitry is that your genes are important for the functions of your neural circuits, even in your adult brain, because they help you to learn. They help genes are actively working to strengthen and weaken the links, the synapses, the links between your different uh, brain cells uh, throughout life. Um, and of course, we have these complex assemblages of neural circuits uh, built by a combination of genes and experience, and it's those in the brain that are doing these kind of complex behaviours. And the idea here is that if we can find uh, something at this end of the, of the spectrum, at the DNA level, um, and we know that it's linked at this other end to speech and language, we can use that as a tool for understanding all these different levels. And there's interactions and, and relationships between the, the levels. This is uh, a gross oversimplification, but it's a starting point for thinking about what I'm going to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to give you an example where we've been able to, to identify a gene that's important in speech and language development. Uh, and the starting point for that, uh, this uh, study was this family here, the KE family. And it's a three-generation family, now a four-generation family. And in each of these generations, you can see these shaded individuals are affected with a severe speech and language disorder. And they're growing up together with these unaffected individuals who are non-shaded, who are growing up together with the kids who develop a severe problem. And the severe problem is that they have difficulties learning to make those coordinated uh, sequences of speech. Um, and they do actually... Uh, 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 become uh, uh, speech users, but there's always a problem. And I'm going to now play you an example, hopefully if this works, from uh, one of the uh, adult members of the KE family from this second generation. And she's being uh, uh, asked by Kate Watkins, uh, a PhD student at the time. She now leads a group in, in, uh, in Oxford, but at the time she was a PhD student in London uh, with Faranavag Academy studying this family. And she asks the lady to repeat different words five times. And she's going to ask, uh, ask them to repeat the word catastrophe. So listen to this. Catastrophe. 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 So she, she's... She's having a great trouble repeating the word catastrophe. Um, that's not a comment on the political situation at the moment, but um, <laughs> I promised I wouldn't be political. But Anyway, um, so this uh, trait that she has is something that it's called childhood apraxia of speech, but actually, as you can hear, it persists into adulthood, and even despite uh, uh, speech th some intensive speech therapy, people still suffer from these problems. Um, and the problem is that uh, they have problems uh, stringing together certain sequences of sound, um, and, uh, and this gets, the problems get worse as the utterances get longer 
and as they become more complex. And this is shown by, this is a study that Kate Watkins uh, carried out in the, on the KE family, where they're being asked to repeat uh, either simple or complex nonsense words. Um, and uh, these are nonsense words like contrampanist and perplisteronk, uh, words that now I practice every day in front of the mirror, so I'm very good at them. <laughs> but these people have never encountered the words, and they try to repeat them back, and they have difficulty doing so. And what you can see on these graphs is uh, these are unaffected members of the KE family, these are affected members of the KE family, and this third line is actually adults with brokers and other kinds of aphasias, uh, damage, uh, brain damage that yields problems uh, with uh, uh, speech praxis. Um, and here, as you can see, the, uh, the material that gives them the most uh, difficulty is when they have to repeat these nonsense words that are really long and complex. Um, and it's not that they can't say certain sounds, it's that they have particular problems with stringing them together in the right way. Something to do with the way that the brain is program, programming sequences of mouth and face movements during speech. Now, they also have lots of other problems with all sorts of aspects of language. They have deficits not just in spoken language, but also if you ask them to write linguistic uh, items as well. There are impairments not just in expression, but also in reception of language. And there are tests of, of uh, grammar com comprehension and production that they do worse on uh, than unaffected individuals. Uh, this is not a kind of general intellectual disability. They don't have, uh, um, all have a, a kind of IQ that's in the uh, intellectual, intellectual disability range. But this family is not the brightest family in the world. So there are some unaffected individuals in the family who have low nonverbal IQ. Uh, and there are uh, affected individuals who have normal nonverbal IQ and uh, severe speech and language problems. So it doesn't seem like the speech and language, uh, that the uh, nonverbal problems that some of the family members uh, suffer from, it doesn't seem like they're uh, a core feature of the disorder. And if you look at patterns of nonverbal and verbal cognition, different kinds of subtests, you find that they have a, a deficits that are much more severe in the verbal range, which is what you would expect for a speech and language disorder. So working in the lab of Tony Monaco in the late 1990s, uh, we started screening the DNA from, these families, from this family, and we pinpointed a linked region on chromosome 7. And this uh, was actually a different region from the region that you've just heard about in the Williams syndrome uh, talk. Eventually, we zoomed in and uh, spotted a, uh, a single tiny change, one uh, uh, letter of DNA, one base of DNA, which normally in every uh, unaffected person in this family and in every one of you, I, I, I can guarantee, uh, was a G. Uh, in the affected members of the family, they have two copies of every gene. One copy had the G, one copy was normal, but one copy has an A instead of a G. Um, and this was private mutation that had occurred in the grandma of that family and then been passed on to half of the affected members, uh, and the unaffected members did not uh, uh, receive this variant. And this was in a gene called FOXP2. And we could already say something about what that gene was, um, it's a gene that regulates uh, other genes. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, and all these genes that, um, that uh, uh, are genes like FOXP2, they have something called a forkhead box domain. They make a protein uh, that has this special domain here that I'm showing you. And it consists of these three uh, helices here, one, two, and three, and these big loops here. And the KE family have this mutation that changes 
one of the amino acids in the protein that they build for FOXB2, and it's this amino acid here, and it stops the protein from doing its job properly. It stops the protein from binding to DNA. Since finding this uh, mutation in the KE family, we and others have found uh, a bunch of other different mutations in FOXP2 in different cases around the world. This just shows you a, a, a picture from a later study showing about eight or nine different mutations that have been found disturbing different letters of, um, of the FOXP2 gene. And in each case, they damage one copy of the FOXP2 gene but leave another copy of the FOXP2 gene intact. So uh, uh, these people have kind of a, an insufficient uh, amount of FOXP2 protein that they're making and they have uh, speech and language problems uh, sometimes other problems in addition, but all, the kind of most common feature across all these patients is speech and language disorder. And we've been able to take the different mutations that disrupt FOXP2 and look at them in the lab. We can grow cells in the lab and, um, and label uh, FOXP2 in green. Here is the nucleus of cells, and here is normal FOXP2 being expressed in the nucleus of these cells, which is where it likes to be. And here are some examples of mutations where the protein can no longer get into the nucleus, and we do other, other assays that show that FOXP2 is not working properly in these cells. So the idea then is that you can use FOXP2 to study all these uh, intermediate uh, levels uh, from <coughs> DNA to speech and language, um, and I refer you to these papers to, to find out more about it. But I'm just going to give you a couple of examples, because I'm running out of time, um, of the kinds of things that we've been studying with FOXP2. So FOXP2 is a regulatory gene that switches on and off other genes, and this is how it works. Uh, it gets transcribed into messenger RNA, um, and uh, this messenger RNA is used as a template to build a protein, also called FOXP2. Uh, this FOXP2 protein finds target genes, and it binds to the promoters, the regulatory regions at the front of each gene, and it could either activate them or it could repress them, it could silence them. And we think that a lot of the time what FOXP2 is doing is to silence these genes, but it can also act as an activator. And it seems to do this like a kind of genetic dimmer switch, if you like. It's not all or nothing. We can then have a look. Using this, we know that we have this gene, can we ask uh, what are the other elements of this FOXP2 network that it belongs to? So we might ask what are the uh, things that... Uh, bind to the FOXP2 gene to switch it on? What are the things, signaling processes that interact with FOXP2 to modulate its function? What are the other factors that bind to FOXP2? And what are the downstream targets that it's switching on and off? We've identified quite a few downstream targets, uh, and many people have been working on this over the years. And what's interesting is that many of the targets that FOXP2 regulates are known to be important for neurodevelopment because when they go wrong, they cause neurodevelopmental disorders like autism, uh, schizophrenia, uh, um, epilepsy, and so on. And we've identified pathways like sumulation that modulate the way that FOXP2 works in the cell, and also other proteins like TBR1 that interact with FOXP2 and that are also implicated in neurodevelopmental syndromes. Um, we, can, we can go further to ask what is the influence of FOXP2 on the neuronal properties. One of the neuronal properties that FOXP2 appears to influence is the outgrowth of neurites from cells. And these are the things that are well, uh, from neurons, and these are the things that will eventually uh, connect up, become axons and dendrites, and uh, connect up with other neurons. And when FOXP2 is lost, um, it can lead to shorter neurites with reduced branching. 
Now, you might ask then, if FOXP2 is so important for things like the outgrowth of neurites, why don't we have a global, when we have a loss of FOXP2, why don't we have a global problem with the whole of our brains? And the reason for this is that FOXP2 is not actually switched on itself all over the brain. It's switched, off in, it's switched on in certain subsets of cells. Um, and so this is if I took your brain, which I promise I won't do, and I slice it in half, um, you can see this is a kind of cross-section. FOXP2 is expressed in the deepest layers of the cortex, uh, especially in motor regions. It's expressed in layer 6 and layer 5. It's also expressed in the basal ganglia, uh, in the striatum, in, in the caudate putamen, the thalamus, and in the cerebellum, it's expressed in a very specific cell type called the Purkinje cells. And what a lot of these circuits do, the cortico-basal ganglia and cortico-cerebellar circuits, is they're important for you to do motor skill learning, to learn to make motor sequences. Um, and uh, since FOXP2 is not a new human gene, it's actually present in, uh, in all sorts of other organisms in, in, in evolutionary history, we can study what FOXP2 uh, does, say, by looking at in a, in a mouse. And when we take a mouse, we can study the way that neurons, these neurons that express FOXP2, the ways they fire during motor skill learning. Um, and, uh, and we can thus kind of get insights into uh, uh, what's happening. And we found that in these different places in the striatum, also in, in Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, that the firing of the neurons during motor skill learning and motor skill tasks is different from... Uh, when FOXP2 is mutated from, uh, from unaffected uh, um, animals. So I'm going to finish there by just summing up. FOXP2 at the extremes, what does this tell us about uh, speech and language development? So heterozygous mutations in FOXP2 cause a rare, severe speech and language disorder in humans. It's a regulatory gene, so its targets and its interactors give us entry points into neural pathways. It's not a gene for speech because, as I've told you, Versions of FOXP2 are active in the brains of many different vertebrate species. The nice thing there is that we can actually study what FOXP2 does in these other places, uh, uh, in these other species. And by studying humans, mice, and even songbirds, which I didn't have time to talk about, uh, we can uncover the roles of the gene in these kind of circuits like corticobasal ganglia and cerebellar circuitry that are known to be important for <laughs> complex motor functions. And a curious question would be, we know that when FOXP2 is damaged, it impairs your speech motor skills. Uh, so it would be interesting to see whether at the other end of the spectrum, for example, in people who are really good at uh, beatboxing, uh, maybe we would be, or rapping, maybe they have uh, interesting variants of FOXP2. So the last thing I'd like to say is that the fact that FOXP2 has been around for a long time uh, in evolutionary history and has been doing important things uh, in the brain means that whatever it's doing in speech and language in humans is not novel and de novo, but it's built on ancient stuff. Uh, so I think this suggests to us that our unique capacity for acquiring spoken language is built on systems that are evolutionarily ancient. Uh, and there I will stop. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.